1: Wherever you get your podcasts.
2: What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
1: The world is full of stories stories of mysteries, of curiosities, of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities we
3: have spent an inordinate amount of time uh, just shopping for little things that you really don't think about when you move and uh, give everything away
2: yeah it, we have started fresh yeah. and it's very weird especially at my age to have a suitcase of things, and that's it.
3: And that's it, yeah. We um, were at a local department store. It's kind of like Target. It's kind of like the Ecuadorian Target. It's called Corral. Coral. And we're in the um, dishware and cooking supply section. And Kat noticed that, and this seems to be common throughout a lot of Ecuadorian department stores, they have little tiny itty bitty frying pans.
2: The tiniest frying pans.
3: They're about maybe three to four inches in diameter. (laughs) So cute. And every time we see them, Kat goes, Aww. Look at the cute little frying pans. Look the baby. Just baby. I think Cat wants to adopt them and raise them.
2: <laughs> the cutest little things.
3: When when you see them, do your ovaries hurt?
2: But do you remember that tiny gardening set that I saw yesterday? Oh yeah, that's. Oh a- my god.
3: <laughs> little tiny rake and shovel. Tiny
2: purpose.
3: Yep. yep. She wants to adopt them and raise them as her own.
2: I'm not terribly maternal, but when it comes to tiny cookware... <laughs>
3: you know, and I thought I knew everything about cat, but this is one more thing that I have learned, is that cat has this maternal feeling toward really tiny frying pans.
2: Also, big news, I got my first plant. <sighs> Very excited.
3: A Christmas cactus. Yeah. From what I understand, because of the weather here, it blooms constantly. So it's always Christmas which you have been talking
2: about non-stop for days now. Imagine what it will look like when we get a wreath over this
3: fireplace. It's because I feel very unsettled right now. <laughs> we haven't had our own place for six weeks. Yeah. And Christmas is, you know, for the most part, a comforting time. It's mm-hmm. a time of familiarity and tradition. That's true. And so I've been kind of focusing on that a little bit. And we have so many unusual traditions for the holidays. Like every Christmas Eve, we make those vegan Big Macs.
2: They're not vegan.
3: Vegetarian, because we use real cheese. And I am already scoping out where to get the supplies for them. (laughs) I feel good about that.
2: French dressing isn't really popular in Ecuador. we're
3: going to have to make do with
2: something. (laughs) Get a mule for French dressing.
3: (laughs) Bring it on in. We've got to
2: make the special
3: sauce. (laughs) Making a run to Miami for some French dressing. (laughs) (laughs) anyway uh what you got for me this may come as a surprise to some of you but the government always doesn't always have our best interests in mind oof Mm. in the shadowed corners of the edgewood arsenal a silent storm was brewing amidst the backdrop of a world gripped by the cold war fears a series of chilling experiments were beginning to unfold
2: can you help me by giving me an, a timeline of when the Cold War was going on. Like, yeah. I know approximately it's like Reagan era, but.
3: Well, that was the later days. Yeah, it began right after World War II. And it was the escalation in the arms race. Who was going to get the biggest uh, hydrogen bomb or nuclear weapon? And uh, it, it really didn't end until the fall of the Soviet Empire. Which was what? Early 90s. So, so like 50 years. It was a long time.
2: I didn't realize it was that long.
3: What was the U.S. military seeking in these concealed labs? The Cold War was marked by an atmosphere of distrust, suspicion, and intense rivalry between the two superpowers, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and it wasn't just a race to achieve nuclear supremacy. The arms race spanned multiple dimensions, including a realm of chemical and biological warfare. Now, the Edgewood Arsenal experiments emerged as a product of this particular volatile environment, and it really did embody the U.S.'s pursuit of advantage across every conceivable uh, military front, especially weaponry. Uh, There were many intelligence reports trickling into Washington, that hinted at Soviet advancements in various forms of weaponry. And the Red Scare was a big thing, especially in the early 60s, uh, during the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis and, and, and all of that. Oh,
2: okay. Okay. No, that totally makes sense. That's all connected. That makes sense. Because I can remember with the, the 50s and the fear of spies and yep. the whole get-out-of-here commies thing mm-hmm. and... McCarthyism
3: yeah McCarthyism
2: yeah okay now
3: I'm I'm with you that was a weird time Now, when I was like I I can remember when I was two years old which is weird it is weird and I'm a bit a bit older than you are
2: not by much though and I'm catching up
3: because I'm one of the eternals (laughs) and I've reached my maximum aging but I remember as a kid, and this, you know, maybe 1964-ish, something like that, World War II was still very much on everybody's mind. It was like only 15 years since since the dropping of the bombs right. in in Japan. And I remember my mother telling me in the winter time, when I went outside to play, don't eat the snow, it's radioactive. That was a weird time to be alive. Yeah.
2: Now it's because it's got bird feces in it.
3: So by the mid-50s, This concern that the U.S. was lagging behind in chemical warfare capabilities was really uh, quite heightened. The belief that the Soviets might have been testing chemical agents on humans, whether true or exaggerated, is what motivated the American military leadership into action. They felt an urgent need to understand these agents and their impact on humans. The choice of Edgewood Arsenal, which is located in Maryland as the primary testing facility, was strategic. It had been the Center for U.S. Chemical Weapons Research going all the way back to World War I. Wow. The days of mustard gas. It's a remote location and uh, it's an established research infrastructure. And that made it the ideal venue for these types of secretive experiments.
2: Well, yeah, I imagine even just the facility has to have certain parameters in order for that kind of stuff to take place.
3: Now, the project was was twofold. Number one, defensive measures. The U.S. Army wanted to understand the physiological and psychological effects of various chemical agents on human bodies. And number two, offensive potential. Uh, Apart from the defensive measures, there was a significant interest in, in uh, evaluating the potential of these chemical agents as weapons. If an agent could incapacitate enemy forces without causing permanent harm or fatality, it was deemed pretty valuable um, commodity. The plan was for the Army to test a wide variety of substances, nerve agents like sarin gas and VX to hallucinogens like LSD. The assumption was that by studying these agents... And their effects on willing U.S. military participants, the military could predict the impact in actual warfare scenarios. Now, I said willing participants. Right. They weren't really up front in the recruitment process for these experiments. It was all volunteer, but the method of recruitment for the Edgewood Arsenal experiments is a disturbing betrayal of trust. One that exploited the sense of duty and patriotism. That was inherent in the U.S. servicemen, especially at this time, right after World War II. The ethics or lack thereof in their recruitment tactics have become one of the most heavily criticized aspects of the entire program. So there were promises and incentives. They were soldiers were lured into participating with offers of tangible benefits Mm. that ranged from extra leave days which was highly coveted sure for those longing to spend time with their families to commendations that could potentially bolster a soldier's career and in some cases simple things like being exempt from regular duties or receiving better meals the descriptions of what they would be undertaking were vague at best and certainly lack transparency. transparency. Soldiers were often told that they would be testing new equipment or clothing or participating in, quote, mind tests related to military readiness. The nature and potential dangers of these experiments were downplayed or left out altogether. Mm. Hey, we're going to bring you in here and we want to see how these new pants fit. Um here we have to inject this in your neck. Just to make sure the pants fit. Do you feel how do you feel? You feeling a little Ooh, you're woozy? Oh, those are bad pants. There was also a calculated avoidance of terms like chemical agents. They never right. They never used that. Sure. Uh, they they wouldn't mention nerve gas or even L S D. Instead the descriptions were cloaked in euphemisms and generalities. Uh it was a deliberate vagueness that was meant to uh, keep them all in the dark. Those who were participating seldom had any real understanding of what they were getting themselves involved in.
2: That's awful.
3: To further quell any potential fears, recruits were frequently assured that they were completely safe. They were often told that a medical staff would be close to monitoring them, uh, implying minimal risk. And it was technically true, but the doctors really didn't do much other than just jot down reactions to various things they were exposed to. Right. I mean, because they're
2: they're testing it on you. So really, they're just observing.
3: And this I find most horrifying. They exploited the servicemen's oaths. Soldiers, by their very training, are conditioned to follow orders that trust their superiors and act in the best interest of their country. Uh, The recruiters, understanding this, capitalized deeply on this ingrained sense of duty. So just betrayal all over the place.
2: Absolutely. And it also seems kind of counterintuitive. Like you want a strong, healthy military force. Why not, you know, enlist Former anvil makers, you know, we're not, you're not busy making anvils anymore. They didn't have a lot of work to do since they weren't making anvils and to exploit a group of people to test chemicals on mm-hmm. it wouldn't be the people that you, en- you enlisted to keep you safe it right. would be the people who aren't currently occupied aka anvil makers well i
3: think one thing that uh, that you failed to take into consideration is that times change and anvil makers are now responsible for making little tiny frying pans
2: oh well in that case
3: so what kind of stuff did they do to these guys Ugh. oh no yeah gonna run through a few things here hallucinogens lsd perhaps the most infamous of all substances used they aimed to investigate the drug's potential for mind control interrogation and psychological warfare participants were they they endured severe hallucinations with some reported experiences ranging from deeply disturbing visions to feelings of disassociation uh, from reality now again they had no idea that they were being tested.
2: That's terrifying.
3: Here, try these pants on. Oh look, the room's full of owls wearing suspenders and smoking cigars. Nerve agents, yeah. Yeah. The most lethal chemicals studied were nerve agents, such as sarin and VX. Uh, These compounds disrupt the nervous system, preventing neurotransmitters from functioning correctly. Immediate effects could include difficulty breathing, convulsions, and in higher doses, death. While the intent was often to administer non-lethal doses, the margin of error was thin, Mm. and many participants experienced severe symptoms. Then there were irritants, like mustard gas. Which has been around since World War I. That was also part of the study, though. These agents cause painful burns on the skin, severe eye injuries, and respiratory damage.
2: And again, you don't know why this is happening to you.
3: No, you're just there being fitted for slacks. But in my mind, one of the most shocking compounds tested at Edgewood was a potent hallucinogen, 3 benzilate, which is known as as BZ, and that's what I'm going to call it from now on. I don't blame you. God, that's a hard word to say. Now, this substance was explored for its incapacitating effects rather than lethal outcomes, but its psychological impacts were beyond profound. Here's how how it went down. They would isolate the subject due to the potent and unpredictable nature of BZ experiments. It took place in an isolated area. They would monitor the setup. Rooms were equipped with two-way mirrors and observation equipment, which allowed the scientists to closely monitor the subjects without direct interaction. They did attempt some medical precautions, though often inadequate. There were some medical precautions in place. An on-site medical team was ready to intervene in case of extreme adverse reactions. But they didn't know much about the dosage. So they were kind of guessing. They had a predetermined amount of BZ, often in the form that could be ingested. The dosage uh, was determined based on animal experiments Ugh. and adjusted to what they believed to be a, quote, safe quantity for humans.
2: Hey, uh, everyone, Just this just in, recent studies have shown that many animals are actually different from people.
3: <laughs> After they ingested the BZ... The subject would be observed for a set period, usually several hours, but sometimes for days because BZ had a very potentially long duration of effects.
2: Oh, no. That's
3: the worst. Yeah. It, yeah. Can you imagine a bad trip going on for days? No.
2: That's like we were talking with that lady not long ago about the frog poison trips. and Yeah. It's how... like
3: ayahuasca kind of thing, but with frog poison. Or yeah. T- yeah.
2: And, you know, the whole lick the frog thing. Anyway, uh, at least that is like, it's 10 minutes and you're done. You're like, whoa, I'm not part of this world anymore. And a little, but then you're done. Yeah. This kind of thing that can go on for long periods of time is terrifying because then you get into like a Jacob's ladder kind of situation where you don't know what's real and what's not. And I don't like that at all.
3: Nope, 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 nope. So here's what would happen after ingestion. Within a few hours, the subject uh, would seem confused. They would become agitated, sometimes extraordinarily docile at first, but then hallucinations would set in, and vivid ones. Subjects would report seeing or hearing things that weren't there. Hallucinations that weren't just visual, they often engaged multiple senses, creating a deeply immersive and disorienting experience. I would think maybe almost, and I know there are various degrees of it, but it almost sounds like some sort of schizophrenic break. I hate this. Physical symptoms included dilated pupils, flushed skin, elevated heart rates. Some subjects became unresponsive, almost zombie-like. Then the paranoia and delirium would set in. So that's always fun. Mm. And again, the duration was extensive unlike many hallucinogens bz's effects didn't last just a few hours but spanned days subjects would oscillate between different symptoms often with periods of lucidity but then followed by intense hallucinatory states so you don't know it's very jacob's ladder that's terrifying and horrible of course there were long-term impacts many participants later reported chronic health issues. Uh, And beyond the physical ailments, the psychological scars run very, very deeply. Many struggled with post-traumatic stress, depression, or other mental health challenges. Their trust in the institution that they served irrevocably shattered, and that added a layer of emotional and psychological trauma as well. What happened? This was a big project. The sheer scale and duration and secrecy of the Edgewood Arsenal experiments might have led one to believe that uh, it would always be shrouded in darkness and secrecy. But people inside started to speak out. Even within the confines of secretive military operations, it's challenging to suppress murmurs of dissent entirely. People started to freak out when they saw what was happening to these people, especially knowing that they had not signed up for this. So a handful of scientists and medical personnel who became alarmed Sounded the alarm. They became whistleblowers. They turned over internal documents and uh, also unofficial reports that later became critical pieces of evidence that revealed the depth of these experiments. The media quickly picked up on it. This was the uh, the early to mid-70s. And investigative journalism was just really undergoing a renaissance at the time Watergate was going on.
2: Right. And a lot of the damn the man kids were now in
3: Journalism. Yes, exactly. So they started picking up on these rumors about the Edgewood Arsenal experiments. And one pivotal moment came when a major publication ran an expose on the project that triggered congressional investigations. So the combined weight of media scrutiny, public outrage and congressional investigations proved to be too much for the Edgewood Arsenal experiments to continue. So by 1975, it was shut down. It led to a series of lawsuits, obviously, Obviously, fall, uh, filed by affected soldiers. So and
2: if it shut down in 75, how long did it go on for?
3: 1948. What? Through 1975. Oh. The dark legacy of Edgewood Arsenal experiments persists today. Numerous affected servicemen and their families continue to fight for justice, seeking acknowledgement, compensation, and medical care for the damages incurred. The experiments stand as... A sobering reminder of the limits that should never be crossed, even in the name of national security.
2: And it's another example of why so many people distrust the government. Mm. You can't just blatantly harm the people of your country and then be like, oh, yeah, totally. Trust us, you guys. These are great pants.
3: My source information. Mind Wars by J.D. Moreno. Clouds of Secrecy by L.A. Cole. In United States Senate records, human drug testing by the CIA 1977 hearing before the Subcommittee of Health and Science Research, Washington, D.C., U.S. Government Printing Office.
2: Good times. That was upsetting. We should watch Jacob's Ladder.
3: I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids.
1: That thing in the middle.
3: Fashion changes from day to day. Back in the mid-19th century, wide skirts were all the rage. Many wearers assumed that the bigger the skirt was, the more fashionable they would be perceived as. Now this became a problem, as some of the women wore skirts that were so big they couldn't fit through doorways. The email address curator at the theboxofoddities.com Michael writes to us, I'm catching up on older episodes and had two reasons to write in. In episode 260, Kat was giving the history of dickering. JG made a comment that dickering is geographically specific and gave the example of dickering for your rent in Ecuador. So the question is, now that you're in Ecuador, did you dicker for the rent? Well, we negotiated.
2: (laughs) That reminds me of the conversation you had with my brother yesterday
3: i was asking his advice on how to hook the gas uh stove up and he was he goes well how big is it and then he wrote the valve i mean i'm glad he clarified before i finished responding right uh, anyway michael goes on to say and the boo effect comes from episode 258 jg was talking about yetis i was driving at the time and as soon as he said yeti i looked over and there was a sign in someone's yard with both the silhouette of a yeti and Yeti spelled out what your Nashville area freak Michael. Always good to hear from you, Michael.
2: Oh, I miss Nashville.
3: What a great town!
2: Renee messaged us and offered to send us a bidet. <laughs> 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 she mentioned that it is still in the box. <laughs> oh. Once you get your living slash mailing arrangements sorted out, I'm super stoked. I'm super stoked that you're doing well and that Haggis is the best traveler ever. Happy expat to you all. Thanks, Renee. Um, We actually, our apartment has uh, one of those ass guns. Yeah, butt guns. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to worry
0: about it. Thank you, though.
3: We appreciate you thinking of our butts.
0: (laughs) Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: The Box of Oddities. Celebrity voice impersonated. What you got, chucklebutt?
3: What does that even mean? I don't know. It's popped into my head.
2: <laughs> well, again, this um, this isn't like super fun. So uh, we're going to start off with the bodies of Leela and Raymond Howard. Both in their 80s were found at the bottom of a 25-foot cliff in a rugged remote area near Hot Springs, Arkansas on Saturday, July 12, 1997. The Howards were both on their second marriage. Mr. Howard and his wife of 53 years, Ethel, had two daughters. Leela Howard was widowed after almost 40 years of marriage to Jesse Copeland. After being widowed, Leela and Howard were married. Family said that they were genuinely in love and that they were rarely apart and they loved doing things together. No. On June 28, they left their Central Texas home to attend the Pioneer Day Festival in a town about 15 minutes away. Leela's son, Hal Ray Copeland, offered to drive them, and Leela declined. She said, oh no, we'll be fine. But the family had good reason for asking. Raymond, who is 88, had recently had brain surgery and was suffering from mental deterioration. Hmm. He'd since been prescribed medication that it was unclear if he was actually taking. And Leela, who was 83, was showing symptoms of memory loss. She would forget something on the stove or confuse a.m. with p.m., Early in the morning, Leela's mind would be pretty good, but as the day went on, that's when things got worse. They call that sundowning. Mm -hmm. Leela Howard was doing a majority of the driving for the couple, but their family had tried to intervene. Her son said that they actually hid their keys for a little while, but Leela had called her son crying and said she couldn't find the keys, and he said he couldn't handle that. It made him so upset, hmm. and when he said that he knew where the keys were and gave them back to her, he could tell that she was really hurt.
3: Yeah, that's a tough decision. That's, yeah. that's hard.
2: And since Leela and Raymond went to the Pioneer Day Festival every year, Leela insisted there was nothing to be concerned about. They'd made up their mind. But it wasn't long before there was something to be concerned about. Their family said that they usually stayed at the festival until about 3 p.m. When it got to be about 5 p.m. and they hadn't returned home, her son was concerned. And then it was 8 p.m. and Ooh. they still weren't home. Mm-mm. So family went to the TV stations and they put it on the TV that night. Rhonda Alfred Coleman, who is Leela's granddaughter, recalled they knew immediately something was amiss. And when they called officers, they came right out and a missing persons bulletin was posted that day. Everyone knew immediately something was wrong. The police, though, got a lot of calls about seeing them. They did make it to Temple, Texas, where the Pioneer Day Festival was, and according to a greeter, had coffee at a Walmart there.
3: Sorry to to interrupt, but how long a drive was it to the uh, Pioneer Day Festival? It was
2: about a 15-minute drive.
3: Okay, so it wasn't a long haul. No.
2: But after they left the Walmart, the trail went cold. In the days that followed, the search began to get national media attention. It was covered on CBS Morning Show on July 9. The Austin American-Statesman printed an article about the missing couple titled, Elderly Salado Couple Missing on a Trip to Nowhere. It was noted in the press that the state of the couple's home didn't ease anyone's mind. There was folded clothing laying on the bed as if they were packing for a trip. Hmm. The television was unplugged. Their hearing aids were left behind.
3: This sounds mighty suspicious.
2: Texas police were getting tips, and after the festival, the couple were seen multiple times. One encounter was with police. They were stopped by an officer 500 miles away in Arkansas. What? Leela was driving at night without headlights. The officer, however, was unaware of the missing report's details. The, the report was from Texas, and the couple were, for some reason, in Arkansas. Hmm. Family noted that Leela Howard did have family in Arkansas and had been familiar with the area. About an hour later, police stopped the couple a second time. But again, even after questioning Leela, didn't recognize the severity of the situation. That stop did, however, narrow the search area. I mean, Texas police knew that they should be looking in Arkansas. The couple were spotted again three days later at a farmer's market in Arkansas.
3: This is weird.
2: It is. The families made several trips from Salado to Arkansas, following the tips, searching the areas where they were last seen. But it wasn't until 13 days later that there was new information. Two boys, walking home near Hot Springs, noticed a strong odor. When they got home, they told their parents about it, and when cops checked the area, they found the Howards' maroon Oldsmobile at the bottom of a 25-foot cliff. Mm. The site where the Howards were located was about 70 miles from where they were stopped twice by two police officers the night of June 28. There were no skid marks leading up to the edge of the cliff, indicating Leela had been disoriented or distracted and made no attempt to stop before going over.
3: That's horrifyingly sad.
2: Yeah, and the family was obviously devastated. At least some questions were answered, but far from all. Copeland said while Leela was never officially diagnosed with Alzheimer's during her life, The family knew that there were some symptoms, and her family said that at that point, it opened up a whole new awareness for those with Alzheimer's and memory loss, and opened up the doors to a big problem that we have in this country. One of those problems is how two separate police officials didn't realize that something was amiss when Leela was stopped in Arkansas. State police officials said future training sessions for police would include a review of the Howard case so officers would be more aware. The case was the first time that Arkansas police were aware of the new Safe Return program that registered memory impaired individuals with a nationwide system. The Silver Alert system has since been enacted which is a public notification system in the United States to broadcast information about missing persons, especially senior citizens with memory diseases.
3: I remember seeing those silver alerts constantly on the um, highway in Orlando, right on I-4. Yeah. Sometimes it would be an amber alert, but oftentimes a, a silver.
2: Yeah. Alert. Unfortunately, in Orlando, amber alerts and silver alerts yeah. were a mm Well, as this story was being reported over the weeks that the couple was missing, one article in the Austin American Statesman caught the attention of fastball bassist Tony Scalso. Wait, the band Fastball? The band Fastball. Okay. Right away, he said, the story sort of struck me. It was an ongoing story, still no developments in the case of a missing couple. I just started getting these ideas, he said. Well, maybe they don't want to be found. Now, the band is from Austin. And Scalso went on to say, I pictured them taking off to have fun like they did when they first met. Scalso had finished writing The Way when he learned that the couple had died. By the summer of 1998, the song was getting lots of airplay, and it peaked on the Billboard Airplay chart at number 5 on June 20th of that year.
3: I still love that song. Me too. And now the lyrics make a lot more sense. They made up their minds and they started packing. Yeah. They left, how's it go, before the sun came out that day.
2: But where were they going without ever knowing the way? Oof. The song is peppy and it's fun, but the lyrics, if you look into them, get really dark. (laughs) They do. Anyone can see the road that they walk on is paved in gold. It's always summer. They'll never get cold. They'll never get hungry. They'll never get old and gray. You can see their shadows wandering off somewhere. They won't make it home, but they really don't care. They wanted the highway. They're happier there today.
3: I just got chills. I've heard that song nine million times, and uh, wow, never resonated like it did just now.
2: Yeah, and at first, the family was unaware of the connection between The Way and Leela and Raymond. But it didn't take long before they realized the uncanny resemblance to their own story. Copeland recalled, It sounded just like Mama and Mr. Howard, the way they passed away. Hmm. The lyrics gave it away. And that's exactly what happened. They simply drove away, just like in the song. A few days later, their suspicions were confirmed. The song that had become quickly a nationwide sensation turned out to be a touching tribute to their late mother. Copeland expressed gratitude to Fastball, saying, I really liked it. I loved the song. Coleman was overwhelmed with emotion in an interview and said, I was completely blown away. I couldn't believe that someone would do something like that for my grandma. It was incredibly powerful.
3: That is so sweet.
2: The couple's disappearance and this connection to the song, which is still heard on the radio to this day, continue to turn our attention toward the needs of the elderly. Once you know what the song is about, you can't help but be aware That there are those, particularly living with Alzheimer's, that demand our compassion and our action. It's our responsibility as a society to ensure the safety and well-being of those dealing with memory loss while actively seeking knowledge about the disease and striving for a cure. Copeland mentioned that his family had noted how Leela had made an impact that is ongoing, now being seen on TV and immortalized in this song. She would have adored that. Aww. And if you'd like to learn more about how to help fight Alzheimer's, an organization that I have worked with over the years is Alzheimer's Association. You can find their website, act.alz.org.
3: Well, that puts a whole different spin on things with that song. Now I've got to go listen to it.
2: I got my information from KVUE.com, Song facts, Greensboro.com, UltimateGuitar.com, which is a weird place to find information about a story like this, and the Austin American Statesman. So, sorry, that was kind of a bummer.
3: Sometimes that's just the way it happens. You know, we, we don't share with each other the stories that we are going to do, and sometimes two bummers line up back-to-back.
2: Sorry about that. Now, if you've listened to the show for any period of time, you have been with us through our trials and tribulations with
3: chairs. That's true. Our very first episode, I think the first thing we said is, first order of business, we need new chairs. And
2: once again, we are sitting on the floor.
3: (laughs) (laughs) At an Airbnb.
2: So I'm really hoping that the next time we record an episode, we're sitting in chairs. Me too. So if you all can just put that out, put your good chair vibes out into the universe.
3: (laughs) Good chair vibes. (laughs) Yeah, we would appreciate that. Thank
2: you. Uh,
3: We will see you next time. We've got a run. Haggis needs to eat. And we're about to adopt a family of uh, tiny frying pans.
2: Until next time, keep flying that freak flag.
3: And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak.
1: And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.